Let us stand in body or in spirit as we listen for a word from God. Today's scriptures are from John 2, verses 1 through 11. Three days later, there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, They're just about out of wine. Jesus said, Is that any of our business? Mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. She went ahead anyway, telling the servants, Whatever he tells you, do it. Six Six stoneware water pots were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said, and they did. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. He called out to the bridegroom, Everyone I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. First of all, I want to greet all of you who are worshiping today at home, who are watching this um, on your computer or on your phone. Some of you texted me and said, I'm not coming to church today, but I'll watch you Sunday afternoon. So, greetings to you. Bless you. Thank you, Carolyn, for reading this passage. This is a wonderful glimpse of who Jesus is. It, it, it is the first miracle that Jesus did in the Gospel of John, and it is part of a, a greater theme that we can see throughout Jesus' life and ministry And it is a theme of abundance. It is a theme that there is indeed enough to go around. You can see it in the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember the disciples were in a mindset of scarcity and they said, how are we going to feed all these people? We should just send them home. And Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. We don't know if it was a miracle. We don't know if people caught a vision of generosity and started sharing their food. But however it is, everybody was filled with enough to eat and there were leftovers. We can see it in not only that story of the feeding of the five thousands, there were other feedings and the message is there's enough. With Christ, there's enough. With Christ, there's more than enough. Religious people, some religious people in Jesus' day had a, a theology of scarcity. And they said, you know, there's really only enough of God's love to include this group of people And not those people. And Jesus said, no, God's love is big enough to include everyone, including the outcast, including 
foreigners, the Syrophoenician woman, the lepers, the tax collectors, the sinners. Do you see the theme of abundant love? That with Christ, there's always enough. With Christ, there's more than enough. In this passage, it's quite a delightful translation from the message because it really kind of gets into the parental (laughs) mother-son dynamic that might have been happening at this wedding where they're running out of wine and Jesus' mother Mary says to Jesus, "Uh, honey, they're, they're running out of wine. And he says... Mother, mind your own business. Have you ever heard that, mothers? Have you ever said that to your mothers? He said, it's not your business or my business if they're running out of wine. It's not my time. Mary ignores that little conversation and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Kind of forces his hand. Jesus tells the servants, fill these enormous clay jars. They are described by some scholars as containing 30 gallons of water. So, the, the water that's down the hall by the elevator, that's a five-gallon jug. 30 gallons of water. Fill them. The servants do. And Jesus says, start serving, brings it to the, the, the one in charge of this wedding. And he says, this is the best wine. You've saved the best for last. Usually, you serve the best first, get people drunk, and then they don't know what they're drinking by the end of the party. But you've saved the best. With Christ, there's always enough. With Christ, there's always more than enough. The prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures and the prophets of the current day are always the voices that God uses to say, there's enough. There's more than enough to go around. Include everyone at the feast because there's plenty of food. There's plenty of rights. There's plenty of access to power. And the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures were always challenging the religious people at the time, which were tending to narrow in and say, God's grace is really just for those who are clean, those who are in our tribe, those who are like us, those who are with power. And the prophets were saying, God's love is bigger than that. Include everyone. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was one of those prophets that said, with Christ, there's always enough. With Christ, there's more than enough to include everyone at the table, to include 
everyone in the right to vote, to include, include everyone with inalienable civil rights, to include everyone in this beloved community that Christians have a glimpse into because it's the values of Jesus that are reflected in the beloved community. This past summer, it was my joy to serve as chaplain at the Methodist House in Chautauqua, at the Chautauqua Institute. And the week we were there, we were hearing speakers and having conversations about the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson was there, and uh, he spoke some really powerful words about Dr. King and about his memories of Dr. King. Brian Stevenson was there talking about his book, Just Mercy, and uh, about the lynching museum and the heritage of our nation that we've never really fully dealt with. Also there was a deaconess of the United Methodist Church. Her name is Clara Esther. Clara Esther had a conversation with Bishop Gene Robinson, who is the president of Chautauqua, the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church. And the two of them sat on a, a stage at the Hall of Philosophy. Some of you were there, have been there. And 600, 700 of us were listening to this conversation. Clara Esther was a 21-year-old social justice activist in Memphis on April 4th, 1968. She was going to the Lorraine Motel that afternoon where Dr. King was staying. And she was down in the parking lot when the shots rang out. And she ran up the stairs and was one of the first people to care for Dr. King after he was shot. She described loosening his belt so that he might be able to breathe, feeling for a pulse there was none, packing his wound. This 21-year-old young adult, a part of history, And that traumatic experience shaped her, changed her, forever impacted her life. Later on that week, my family and I got to spend some time with Clara Esther down at the United Methodist Missionary House, right down on the lake of Chautauqua. And we asked her to tell us some more, and she shared some powerful stories. I said, you know, I really wish my congregation in Chatham could hear some of your stories and your wisdom. Is it possible for me to spend some time interviewing you later in the week? She said, absolutely, sure. So I've edited down some of the full conversation, but I want you to listen in on some wisdom and some faithfulness from Deaconess Clara Esther. I'm with one of the great faithful Methodists of our time, Deacon Clara Esther. 
And I said, what is the most respectful way I can address you? She said, just call me Clara. So, Clara, I'm so glad that you can spend some time with us. Thank you for your witness. We're here at Chautauqua Institute in Chautauqua, New York. And Clara uh, spoke with Bishop Gene Robinson um, just a few days ago about uh, your experience uh, at the Lorraine Motel uh, on April 4th, 1968. Um, would you just tell us briefly about your experience there? And then um, I have a follow-up question about how to work through uh, some of the violence that you experienced. I. Um was with friends and we were going to get catfish. Uh, I didn't share that the other day, but James Owens, the SCLC staff, had indicated Dr. King had bragged about the catfish at that hotel. So he said, the dinner's on me. Well, I was gone home. Got in the car, Mary Hunt, maybe even some other people. I don't, I don't remember all of the details with who wrote with whom. Uh, but we pulled up to the hotel, and James was gesturing the door that we would go through. And about time we got to where I was not dead center of his room, he came out of his room. And I continued to walk, and I saw it was him, and I stopped, and I just got locked into him. And he was talking to people down below. Uh, telling Ben Branch to play his favorite song. Undoubtedly we were having a meeting later. Uh, this was all a little bit before six o'clock. And um, so he said, play my favorite song, Precious Lord. And he was, and Ben said, Doc, you may need a coat. He turned to go back in his room. Abernathy said, I'll get it. Martin continued to chat. He was laughing, and then wham, it sounded like a truck back there. Uh, people started saying, but I never took my eyes off him. And people were saying, get down, get down. And during that time, I was probably already headed up the stairwell. I stepped over his body, uh, he was in a pool of blood already. Uh, his tie had been blown off of the side, the bullet had hit, and I tried to get a pulse. There's very little beat at all. I unbuckled his belt and unbuckled that pants button to try to help with the air. And then I asked people to get towels so we could maybe stop some of the blood from just flowing. Uh, when the gentleman came back with towels, he stepped over, I moved myself, and then he started holding towels against his face. I remember you sharing a story a few days ago in, in our conversation about um, how you were going through a season where you were only in touch with your, your hatred and your fear, but God moved you to a place of social justice from a place of love, a stance of love. And I sense that we have wisdom to learn from you. What advice do you have? For people who are seeking social justice, that righteous anger has a place, but to discover a stance of love that motivates the social justice and righteousness. You know, the whole movement with the um, in the 60s was nonviolence, and it was built on love conquers hate. 
Um, and until I think I got older and started reading some Martin King's material and, and getting a little deeper into things that he was really advocating for the movement, did I not get a better grip to that. Um, but you know, when you get angry, it takes so much energy and time. Yeah, yeah. It takes, you got to plot what you're going to do to your wife when she comes home. I'm not going to fix dinner. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be in a lengthy argument and conversation. And nonviolence said, uh, God loves you and I love you too. And then I think I came to a point in life that I realized that we are what has been shaped and developed by our parents. And that I can't fight that. Because I'm a certain way. And it would take a whole lot, and a whole lot has changed my life. But it takes a whole lot to change the root causes of racism. But you can do it by one-on-one. -on -one. You can do it through relationship. When um, you were talking about nonviolence, did your pastor, Reverend James Lawson, teach you about nonviolence? Jim was as nonviolent as anyone could get. He has the biggest heart of a person. Um, he married James Earl Ray. He went back and eulogized James Earl Ray. Uh, forgiveness, uh, of course, he doesn't believe Ray was part of the assassination that he was a part of it, but he was used and the, and the actual murder got away and Ray got captured. Uh, but Jim went to India and studied Gandhi mm -hmm. and came back and actually shared his nonviolent knowledge at that point to the SCLC staff. Mm -hmm. He took it to Dr. King. Mm -hmm. They embraced it. Mm -hmm. And then Jim was part of the sit-ins. If you saw the movie, The Butler, uh, he's the one with the clerical collar on. Um, and he's trying to train these students on how not to respond back. It takes a lot. You, you gotta be a strong person to be shelved and called names and coffee poured over your head and all that kind of stuff without doing anything but sitting there. Uh, but that was the whole part of the city. My family and I a few weeks ago went to the African American Museum uh, in, in D.C. and there's a, a counter. Have you have you been? I haven't been. It's, it's, we spent the whole day there and we didn't have enough time. But there's a counter where you can sit at the counter and see videos of what people endured in those sit-ins. And there are questions that they ask the people sitting there on a video screen mm -hmm. as to what would you do if. So I was thinking about Reverend Lawson and the teaching that he would be giving in church basements. Was it in Nashville or was it in Memphis? Nashville. And I, I wonder if there's a time coming up where we're gonna need to teach that again and teach nonviolence as an expression of Christian faith 
as we deal with the powers of the principalities or as we engage violence? We need to do that probably again for people that are active in protests, but we need to have conversations around racism. Yeah. And I think that um, the example you just shared, sitting in a booth and a person popping up saying, what would you do if they refused to serve you? And you're a white person, uh, so you got some privileges here. Yeah. What would you do if they dumped the sandwich of the food in your lap? Uh, how would you react? It helps you because you've now put my shoes on. Yeah. And it helps you understand, hmm, maybe that's why they broke those windows out. Um, I don't approve that type of action today. Um, I understand it. Yeah. I understand the eagerness to, to resolve something quickly uh, through that process. I'm not supporting it as being right, mm -hmm. but I understand it because I was once there. You know that landscape. Yeah. I want to honor your time. I saw them poking their head in the doors. It's probably dinner time down at the Methodist house, but can I just ask two brief questions? When we spend some time uh, down at the, the missionary house at Chautauqua, you said some things to my son and daughter, and it was a word of encouragement uh, to them, but I sense you have wisdom and a deep love for the next generation. What would you say to the next generation who's looking for wisdom uh, and looking to be faithful in some way? Well, number one, I think when they take history classes, they need to read more than what they're instructed to read and look at the other populations of people, African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, read deeper into that history, go to the Holocaust, go to the African American museums, help to understand why we are where we are today. I think once that's there, uh, and, and, and it just brings love to my heart when I see parents uh, that are doing that with their children. So to do that and, and to love above everything else, that they are the hope. That's the only hope I have is that our young folks are going to take us to another level. Episode two. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So this is now our, our call, our task, our ministry, to live our lives in such a way that everyone will know they're included in God's love. To live our lives in such a way that we know that everyone is welcome at the table that God prepares. This is not easy work. But following Christ is not easy. And I'm thankful for the witnesses of those who have gone before us, who have paid even with their lives to be true to the gospel. May it be so for you and for me and for for the beloved community throughout the world. Amen.